Hello, friends. Welcome to the Christchurch Port Orange Midweek Podcast, where we deep dive into the scriptures we examined from the previous Sunday morning without the constraint of time, as well as discuss questions and topics of interest from members of our Christchurch family. I'm Pastor Jesse Jarvis, your host. Let's dive in. Welcome back, friends. Good of you to join us. The audio may sound a little different. We've been moved to a room that has a hard ceiling, and so there's a little bounce. But we're glad you're tuning in. I'm excited to get into this week's episode with you. And today I'm again joined by our worship and tech director, Bill Mayer. Woo, let's do it again. <laughs> I'm getting some great feedback. Thanks to you who have been following along, listening, and uh, communicating with us that you're enjoying the podcast. We are definitely enjoying it, but we are not doing it for us. So thanks for letting us know that it's meaningful to you. We are, um, we are now just under four weeks away from finishing the Bible in six months, and we are continuing our conversations around the Binge the Bible sermon series. We're going to get ahead of the game today um, as we look into John's Gospel, which we just started reading this week, and in response to a question that we got from Alan, who is now a dual citizen of Christ Church and his new home church in North Carolina. Thank you, Alan, for continuing to um, engage with us now that you've moved out of state. It's been a joy. And we're going to talk about one of my favorite, if not my favorite passage of scripture. So this should be, this should be fun. So in our reading, we've started John's gospel. And as we mentioned last week on the podcast, John's gospel is the fourth gospel and the latest written book of the New Testament, more than likely. And he provides for us some angles on the person and specifically the divinity of Jesus, the Messiah that had come into question by the end of the first century. And so there's some um, Judaizing that's taken place. There's some Gnostic influence that's taken place. And there's some um, new ideas about the nature of Jesus, who he was, what his existence in bodily form meant, uh, what it looked like for him to be crucified and to ascend and then what expectations we would have about the future as a result of different explanations about who he was. And so John, who is a eyewitness to these things, likely the youngest of the 12 apostles, now in his either late 80s or early 90s, is uh, publishing what was certain to be a lifelong uh, journey of recording and composing um, this gospel. Now, I say that for a couple reasons. One is... Um, next week, we're not going to have a podcast because we are hosting Vacation Bible School here at the church, and there will be no rooms available for us to record in. And uh, so we're going to be fully dedicated to our kindergarten through fifth graders next week. And then the following week, we are going to host a, uh, a special episode of the podcast where we're going to be talking about uh, eschatology. I've asked two of the couples who attend Christ Church to join us. They've asked me a number of really insightful questions uh, about the eschatology that they kind of grew up learning, different things they've heard on YouTube and online and in previous churches. And so we've had some great conversations off the air. And um, I wanted to bring that to our listening audience. And so I've asked them to join us. So that should be interesting. And this connects to today's podcast because what you believe about Jesus and how you see his role in the rest of the scripture is going to create for you a lens by which you interpret the prophetic, remaining prophetic texts, and they shape your expectation of what the future will hold. 
and there's a number of uh, differing viewpoints, eschatological viewpoints, eschatology is the study of last things, eschatos or eschaton, and um, this is this primarily um, figures into the later chapters of Matthew and Luke's Gospels, where Jesus is giving predictive um, kind of, I don't know, descriptions of future judgment. And uh, there's a lot of controversy about how much of that was was um, in anticipation of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and how much of that was of the distant future and what we're still awaiting. But you can't really answer those questions without coming to have a interpretive lens by which you interpret the whole scripture. And so we're going to talk about that uh, next week or next time we podcast next, not next week, but in two weeks. And uh, so I'd love for you to engage with us. And I'm sure there's many people who are listening who have um, eschatological questions. So since we're going to tackle that as a topic and not just talking about the text of Revelation, we're going to be having this podcast in anticipation of reading Revelation. Uh, I'd love to invite any of your specific uh, end times questions, end times prophecy questions, um, anything, anything that's been kind of brewing in your head. So take some time over the next week and send us those questions. And we're going to try to hit as many of those as possible. And, um, and then what I'm the most excited about is giving our listening audience some handles by which you may read revelation with a different interpretive lens. doesn't mean you're going to uh, agree with me and it doesn't mean that you're going to, um, believe what I believe. That's okay. Um, but I would love for you to have a way of reading revelation that may give you some insights into how to interpret what it is that you're reading. And so I think it'd be fun to go on that journey together and I'll do the best I can in two weeks to, to give you that uh, interpretive method. But for now, let's get back into the gospel of John and Alan's question uh, is directly connected to John chapter 15. He writes, John chapter 15, verses 1 to 10, which is the vine dresser of vine branches scripture, is the basis of my questions this week. As I understand it, Jesus was expressing what our roles are as apostles slash disciples. That's true. He's, Jesus is directly speaking to the 12 apostles, and there are some specific immediate application to those 12, namely about how to interpret the falling away of Judas and his betrayal. But also there's some universal principles that apply to all Jesus followers. So yes. In the context of this passage, Alan continues, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the work that would need to be done after his crucifixion to build the church. True. Viewing this passage through a modern lens, there's that lens again, are we not still expected to fulfill our roles as the branches helping to lead people towards Jesus, in essence, to continue to build the church. So that's the first element of his question. And that's a very insightful because it's easy for us to read a passage like John 15, 1 to 10, which we will read um, in just a minute, which talks about, you know, Jesus, I am the true vine, this call to abide. And then there's some identity language. He's the vine, we're the branches. And the outcome of our union with Christ and our connection with him is that we would bear fruit. And a lot of times we interpret uh, any, any fruit as like, personal spiritual transformation, maturity. And here Alan is capturing the, through this interpretive lens, that the fruitfulness that's talking about here in John 15 is not only about personal transformation, which it can be and certainly is, but also is it about fruitfulness of uh, seeing lost people become saved and seeing the kingdom of heaven expanded. And there's some fruitfulness that's there missionally as well. So that's good insight, Alan. 
He continues, another term that is clearly expressed in the passage is abide. This is the Greek meno, 10 times within the verses. This is true. It's a very prominent feature in this section. One of the definitions of abide is to remain, continue, stay. If we abide in Jesus, we live a life that reflects our oneness with Jesus. Yes. At this stage, the apostles have not been blessed with the Holy Spirit within them, as Jesus details in John 16, 4, verse 15. And then he asked the question, do you believe the apostles fully understood what Jesus was asking of them and implying to them at the time? This is a great question. And it brings us again back to the point of the scriptures and the way in which they function. If you're reading the Bible, if you're reading the gospels as like a real time explanation, as though someone was recording it um, using shorthand or a stenographer, and then asking the question, man, did the disciples understand this? Yeah, absolutely not. They, there was so much that even the gospel writers tell us that at the time we didn't understand what this meant. And then later, later we got it or after, after Jesus appeared or when the Holy Spirit came, then we understood what these things meant. And so, yes, they did not understand. But by the time John composed his gospel, not only did they understand, but they had seen the fruition and the fulfillment of the very things that Jesus had said. And so he's writing retrospectively about what he, it is he heard from Jesus, but then also with an understanding of what it meant as he's writing. And so we're supposed to be able to understand what it is Jesus means, even though in real time, as John's writing backwards into time, the disciples wouldn't have understand understood what that meant. So... Alan expresses that he struggles with abiding in Jesus. So he, this is like, what does this abiding mean? And how are we to do that? And then what does the common human struggle um, to continually abide with Christ look like? And then he talks about applying that to his roles in life, home, friends, hobbies, church, and his own inner thoughts, which I think is just very vulnerable and personal. And I think it's gonna make for a very good conversation for us today. So thank you, Alan, for provoking that conversation. He continues, my behavior does vacillate as I weave between these various relationships and settings. I want to be the same man regardless of the setting. Oh, this is so good. I admit this is a challenge. Still, if I truly abide in Jesus at all times, those around me will see Jesus in me and want to seek him as well. At least that's my hope. No, you're spot on there. So question number three, how do you manage this challenge? Perhaps your insights can help me and others like me who struggle in the same way. And then he asked me to forgive the personal nature of his last question. Now, I actually appreciate the personal nature of your last question most because we're not just here to learn more information. We're here to grow deeper in our relationship with Jesus and that's gonna require application. Um, so there's gonna be some specific steps. Um, I will say that there are universal truths and there's this invitation into relationship that is for everyone. And if we avoid that or we ignore that, we're gonna miss out on the very thing that Jesus is trying to communicate in John chapter 15. This passage is about our union with him, our oneness with him uh, through faith and by the gift of his Holy Spirit. And it is um, essential for the Christian journey. You will not grow into what God has called you to be without this abiding. And you can stalemate your own progress and effectiveness in the kingdom by ignore, ignoring, avoiding, or even compartmentalizing your relationship with Jesus. Um, this, is, this is true, we saw in, in Luke's gospel, where he's in chapter 14. We didn't really cover this on Sunday, but at the end of chapter 14, Jesus says, if you, you can't be my disciple unless you, you, know, you cut off allegiance to your family and even to your own desires. Like, this is what it takes 
And so he goes into the section in the back half of 14, Luke 14, to talk about counting the cost. And he gives these illustrations of fighting a war, building a tower. You got to go all in. And if you're not willing to go all in, don't bother, is what Jesus is saying. So he's got some real severe language there. But the same is true when, when, when it talks about remaining in him, abiding in him, having this relationship with him. It's not something we can compartmentalize. It's not something we can dabble in. Um, sometimes... Uh, passages like taste and see that the Lord is good is used to like express like, Hey, come have a sample of God. And if you like it, you'll want it. And you know, that may work in Sam's club on a Saturday <laughs> to try, to try this piece of fried chicken or this, this, uh, jalapeno stuffed olive. But, um, this is not what God is after. God's after our wholeness, our fullness, our oneness with him. And it is transformative and it is a part of his kingdom purposes. And so I think this is going to be a, a phenomenal conversation. But before we get to the application, why don't we talk a little bit about um, the information? So we already kind of introduced John's gospel as being a late addition to the New Testament canon about having some purposes to um, dispel some myth around the nature of Jesus and really some early developing heresy around Gnosticism and Judaizing. And so here the divinity of Christ is put on full display. Now, I, I'm of the belief that John spent many decades composing his gospel, um, partially because it has so many layers of artistic uh, creativity. So John's gospel has a symmetry down the middle. So it's really two parts, book one or the book of signs and book two in the book of glory. And book one is through one through 12. And there's a distinct difference between the first 12 chapters of John and then the back half of John uh, in, in narration, in time movement, uh, in content of speech, in word choice. And so there's, there's a very um, purposeful, intentional uh, symmetry that John is trying to get our attention with. But then he doesn't leave those two sections disconnected. In fact, he connects those sections through three layers of statements from Jesus surrounding the Greek phrase, ego a me, which is a way of saying I am. And just like in English, we contract I am to I'm, um, it's easy in Greek to contract ego a me to simply a me. So in Spanish, you might say yo soy formally, but if you're speaking informally, you wouldn't say yo soy, you would say soy. And so Greek is the same way. So if you're gonna use ego a me, you're doing so to add emphasis to I, or the combination of these two words, I am. And so Jesus actually utters this phrase, ego a me, 21 times in John's gospel in three sets of seven interactions. Three of them, he says, um, he, he ends a description, before Abraham was, I am. And he ends with, I am. And that's, that's on purpose. In, in, uh, in Greek, you're going to add emphasis through word order, and so when you put the, um, the uh, state of being verb, the to be verb at the end of a sentence, you're accentuating that. And so Jesus says that seven different times. He also uh, responds to questions about his identity by simply saying, I am, or I am he, it comes across in English. John 4 is an instance, he who you speak of or with, I am at the woman at the well is an example. But seven times we get this uh, Jesus saying, I am, ego a me. And of course, the I am is the Exodus chapter three self-revelation of the eternal covenant uh, monotheistic God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. And so Jesus is making himself equal with God. And John draws our attention to that repeatedly throughout his gospel. 
that the, the Jews responded to kill Jesus or to stone him or to, um, to plot to kill him because he made himself equal with God or called God his own father. And so John is very, very, very intentional about putting forth the deity of Christ and using these multi-layered, um, multi-directional ways of um, putting the words in Jesus' own mouth that he is himself uh, equal with God. And of course, John does this in his preamble in chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, where he opens his gospel with, in the beginning was the word. This is the logos. This is the, the expression of God in form, in this case, thought form or spoken word form. But he's attesting uh, that Jesus is the word, the word that was at the beginning, um, the word that spoke, let there be light. Uh, John is equating that word with the expression of the invisible God in visible manifestation, uh, Jesus. So in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so there's a, there's a Trinitarian development here. So the spirit of God hovers over the waters in Genesis chapter one. Uh, God said, let us make man in our own image. And here John is saying, the eternal word, the son, Jesus was with God in the beginning and he was God. He was equal with God. And so there's some, some nuance that's developing, um, in the first century where the monotheistic, um, Jewish religion is now expanding to have an understanding of God that's triune. And so God is one in essence, but three in persons. Of course, this gets worked out in the council of Nicaea in uh, the language that we've come to understand it today, but it's in the text of scripture. And John is, uh, is expressing this in his introduction. But the point is the divinity of Christ and the equality of Christ with God the Father, the creator and covenant-making God of the Old Testament. And John does this through these three layers of I am statements from Jesus. Now, that's a lot of backstory, um, but we're getting to John chapter 15 where um, these this is the last of the seven I am statements where Jesus begins a revelation about himself with the phrase I am. I am the true vine. And this is the seventh of seven uh, in, uh, John chapter 15 verses one to 11. Now, if you're like a very meticulous Western thinker, you may go through this list of seven and go, Oh, well, a couple of these, Jesus said it twice. And so aren't there nine or aren't there 11, depending on how you, how, what English translation you're reading. Um, just because Jesus reiterates something in close proximity and says the exact same thing again, does not mean that we're adding that as a separate structure. So these seven, um, I am statements. Super important. So if you've been reading John's gospel, or maybe you've been studying the scriptures for some time and you already know these seven, but Jesus begins in John chapter six with, I am the bread of life. We talked about this during communion two weeks ago. Um, in John chapter eight, I am the light of the world. And that gets reiterated in chapter nine, verse five, less than a chapter later. The third I am is the door or the gate. Uh, this is John chapter 10. And this is uh, hinged on the Good Shepherd story, which is also in John chapter 10. So they're not like evenly separated, but they're building and they're making connection. So the gate of the sheep, the Good Shepherd. And then um, as we come to the end of the book of signs and G the, the main sign of the seven signs, again, there's some, some beautiful, purposeful, I mean, of all the miracles Jesus did, John records seven for us. And the seventh is the resurrection of Lazarus. And that's what ends um, the book of signs. And it's in and around that where Jesus reveals himself in chapter 11 as the resurrection and the life. And then um, in chapter 14, we get, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then the seventh of the seven is, I am the true vine. So 
I want you to get a picture of how detailed and um, creative and purposeful John is being to layer not only this symmetrical form to help us to focus in on what's the most important in which the, the weight of the text and the time given and the, the narration slowing down in the second half of his gospel is really focused in on the death of Christ and this interaction, this long interaction he has with his disciples from chapter 13 to 16 before his priestly prayer in chapter 17. And so um, John's also now layering these multiple uh, sevens of I am to establish the divinity of Christ. So I say all this to bring us to John chapter 15 so that we can kind of deep dive a little bit on the true vine. And the goal of that is so that we can answer Alan's insightful questions and then apply that to our own personal life. So thank you for going on this journey with us. So John chapter 15, let's read it together. Well, I'm gonna read um, verses one through 11. So John writes of Jesus saying, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now, before we get to verse four, where we get the command to abide, let's notice a couple things. Um, Jesus in verse five is going to restate, I am the vine, but notice in verse one, he says, I am the true vine. Now, if you are a first century Israelite, the vine is a symbol for you that is deeply connected to your sense of nationalism and patriotism. So the temple that existed, the second temple that existed in Jesus' day, um, had been um, ornately decorated by King Herod and was covered, literally cloaked in gold. And one of the elements of that temple, and of course there's only um, written descriptions about this temple, there's no pictures, um, but there was a vine that was wrapping the entire uh, soffit of the temple from its whole perimeter. Um, best estimates that I could find in about 2015 is that the gold that was making up that vine only was worth somewhere in the $140 million in today's currency. And that's, you know, eight years ago. So we're talking insane amount of, of um, opulence, decadence and wealth. And that's this vine. So this incredible detail and the vines, there are not an accident, but just like as Americans, we have the bald eagle as kind of like the representative American symbol, a symbol of um, freedom and power and strength and perspective. Um, and so we see a bald eagle, we think America. If you were to see a vine, you would think Israel. In fact, the, the minted coins in Jesus day uh, had a vine on them. And so this was very symbolic of nationalism for the Jews. Now this didn't come from nowhere. If you open up your Bible and you go back into the Old Testament, you're going to find again and again and again references to the vine. And so Israel was meant to be this vine. And so this these are passages like Exodus 15:17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, a place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. And so there's this planting that begins, Psalm 80, eight and nine. You brought a vine out of Egypt. This is the Exodus. You drove out the nations, Joshua, and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. 
in uh, in the later parts of the Israel story, uh, when they had turned their backs on God and judgment was coming and the Babylonian exile was at hand in Jeremiah 2, 21, um, God speaks to the prophet, I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? And so the picture here is, Israel is a vine that God planted. Israel is the preservation of the seed of God's promise. There's a purity there through the, the Levitical law and through uh, the receiving of God's covenant. And so if you're walking, if you're abiding essentially in the revelation to date, then you're going to be this, this pure thing that's going to bear fruit all over the earth. But instead, there's unbelief, disobedience, and corruption. And that's pictured in the judgment of being a wild vine that ends up being plucked up and thrown away and burned up and good for nothing. Isaiah 5 is another another section that talks about the vine in equation uh, with Israel. He dug it and cleared it of stones, verse 2, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And so the Old Testament picture is that Israel is this vine and that there was going to be this Um, life flowing from God's divine presence to his people and that there was going to be fruitfulness. Now, obviously that's limited in the first century uh, Israelites thinking to prosperity and peace. So their big word was shalom. And the expression of, of being recipients of God's covenant promise and being faithful to God's covenant promise resulted in human flourishing for the nation of Israel among the nations of the earth. And so Pharisees would have looked at uh, it, it, the nation of Israel and their oppression, and they would have blamed that on the unfaithful among them, which created the us and them kind of dynamic that we see that Jesus obviously comes to, to blow apart. And their solution was um, repentance and faithfulness. And so this is why they were pushing this Pharisaical uh, approach to, to Judaism on the Israelites and standing in judgment of everyone. They assumed that they could fix everything from the outside in, of course, Jesus comes on the scene to oppose that and say, hey, you don't have an outside of the cup problem. You have an inside of the cup problem. You need a renovation of heart so that you can bear this fruit. And that's going to come um, not through a righteousness that you have of your own. It's going to come through a righteousness that comes to you through this divine union. And so he is taking this concept of Israel as a vine and he's replacing himself as the source of of that vine and giving us an identity, not as the vine, the source of life in our own obedience, but in dependence upon him, we are actually the branches of the vine. And so I am the true vine. Israel was incapable of being the vine that the world needed. In fact, it only bore bad fruit. And so in the judgment of God, he's plucked up this vine and thrown it away. This is a picture of the exile. And yet we get these passages um, like, I believe it's Isaiah 11 or 12, where from the stump of Jesse, a, a shoot, a branch comes forward. And so where God has preserved a remnant, he brings forth the promise of the seed of the woman. And that in human form is Christ, but in divine form becomes the true vine by which all humans find their source. And so that, that's, that's kind of the thing that's happening here. He's also kind of setting us up for and getting us um, ready f- to interpret um, the falling away of Judas and his uh, subsequent suicide, and then the falling away of Peter and his subsequent return. 
And so he's talking about any branch in me that does not bear fruit will be cut off. My father's the vine dresser. So there's the sovereign hand of God working to explain why some people fail and then do not come back and others fail and do come back. And so in Peter's case, there was a pruning. And in Judah's case, there was, uh, he was completely removed. And so Jesus here is, and again, through John's retrospective, perspective. He's looking back and he's going, oh, look, Jesus was warning us. He was helping us to understand, hey, God is the one who decides who's in and who's out. He's the one who does this pruning work and he's after a heart that stays close to Christ. And so the difference between Judas and Peter, of course, is that when Peter came running back to Jesus at first opportunity and Judas cut himself off completely uh, through unbelief and um, either regret slash remorse, but ultimately to, to end his own life, seeing himself as unwilling, uh, unable to come back to God. And so this question of return and abide, remain, stay, uh, that's the source of all good things. And so your, your um, closeness to and connection to Jesus is where your fruitfulness comes from and not elsewhere. And so this, these themes are, are laid here in these opening verses. John uh, 15, 4 then picks up, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So you have a branch, you disconnect it from the vine for a few hours. It looks just like it did when it was disconnected, but after a period of time, it begins to wither and dry and then die. And then there's no more life that will ever come from it. This is something we're all very familiar with. And Jesus is saying, and so this connection is what matters. And so we get this verb abide, meno, remain, stay, um, make your home with stay connected to. And then a restatement in verse five, I am the vine. You are the branches. Jesus is here spelling out for us the identity of each him and us and the relationship that we have as dependent upon the life that he, the life force that he supplies. Whoever abides in me, and here you have this universal offer, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. Now the bearing of fruit then can be applied in a number of different ways that are faithful. Um, spiritual transformation, you become more like Christ as you're relating to him and connected with him. You're putting to death the old man. You're walking in the new life uh, that results from your faith in Christ uh, imaged in baptism. But then there's also the fruitfulness um, that we're going to see on Pentecost as the Holy Spirit comes. The main thing he does is empower his disciples for boldness for witness. And we see fruitfulness in the form of um, bold gospel proclamation and repentance and the increase of the church. And this is what Alan's making a connection with. Okay, my personal connection with Jesus ought to be transformative to the point where my life looks like him. And then in the way that I live in the world, I ought to be having an influence that causes other people to see Jesus and therefore come into faith uh, with him. And that's true. So there's both an identity and a purpose um, dynamic to your oneness with Jesus. And that is pictured in fruitfulness. And so there's, those are two valid ways of looking at this phrase. And I think Jesus uses this phrase on purpose, um, all throughout the old Testament. Um, the, the expansion of the kingdom is organic. So a mustard seed, Jesus talks about a harvest. Um, the old Testament images, uh, fruitfulness of the land, milk and honey, but that's also meant to be an influx of the nations into Israel. And so uh, fruitfulness and harvest and these images are both personal transformation and also the imitation of one's father 
John chapter eight and other places, uh, Sermon on the Mount, but then also the inclusion of the nations through faith and the revelation that comes through those who are joined with Jesus. So that's good insight, Alan. Now, this brings us back to the identity and the purpose or the vocation of Israel in the world. So we go back to, I am the light of the world, Jesus says previously to, I am the true vine. And this also was a, 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 um, a name or a classification or a vocation that was given to Israel. Israel was meant to be the light to the nations. And so faithfulness to God for Israel was meant to lead to fruitfulness for God in all people. So this is the Isaiah 11 passage that I was talking about. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Stump meaning this cutting down, this judgment, which we saw through the book of Kings and the destruction of the nation of Judah after the nation of Israel. And a branch from his roots shall, what, bear fruit. And so Jesus is gonna be the new source of fruitfulness. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And so because of his uh, wholeness and perfection, now the third person of the Trinity is now completely expressed without limit in Jesus. The spirit of wisdom, understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And so you get the sevenfold picture of the fullness of the spirit of God upon Jesus. And then for those in Christ, despite the fact that we're not perfect like Christ, but we're made perfect in Christ. Now we have the same unhindered fullness of spirit that uh, Christ made available to us. And in verse 10, it says in that day, the root of Jesse, and, and this is, in, this is important to recognize this too. So Jesse is the father of King David, but now we're going backwards, not forwards from David who received the promise that his seed or son would forever sit on Israel's throne. And so you think Solomon, and then you think eventually a descendant of David who will sit on his throne forever. And that's who Jesus Messiah is. But now we're going backwards to the source of David's father, the root of Jesse. So where did this promise come from before it got to David? Well, it came from Abraham and it came from Noah and it came from Adam and it came from God. And so we're going backwards and he shall stand as a signal or a sign for the peoples and of him shall the nations inquire. So this is where a new vocation is being fulfilled. Israel's vocation is being fulfilled in Jesus. And now this is drawing national attention, global attention, and his resting place shall be glorious. And this is forward looking to the consummation of all things. So this is how this whole thing's fitting together. And in the summation of all the seven I am's of John's gospel, I am the true vine is uh, the expression that we're getting here. And this is uh, connected to the purpose of God's people, Israel, and their inability to keep it. So this is gonna get us into eschatology a little bit in two weeks, because what you believe about Israel, um, her calling and failure, and then Jesus picking up that mantle and fulfilling it, and then establishing his people of both Israel and the nations, the ethnos, the Gentiles, all peoples, um, you're gonna to start to interpret things that are said about the people of God called Israel in the Old Testament as being fulfilled in Christ. And therefore anyone who's in Christ is the fulfillment of those things. There's some versions of this that uh, critics would call replacement theology, where there's like some cheap um, tricks that are done to basically say, oh, Israel is the past and the church is the future. And so anything that's Israel is the church. And so there is no Israel, there's only the church. And people who are going, well, that doesn't make any sense. Um, but the missing link there is, well, it's not about the church replacing Israel. It's about Jesus fulfilling what Israel could not. 
it, Jesus being the son of God where Israel could not be, Jesus being the vine of God where Israel would, could not be, Jesus being the light to the nations where Israel could not be. And as a faithful Israelite and a son of David and the eternal son of God and the seed of the woman, um, the center point of all God's fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies is not first and foremost in the church. It's first and foremost in Jesus. And for those who are um, joined with Jesus and by faith abiding in Christ, we are now that expression and that fulfillment uh, on the earth, both Jew and Gentile, as the New Testament is going to explain to us. And so it's unhelpful for us to look backward and expect there to be a specific geo-ethnic fulfillment of Old Testament texts around the nation of Israel, or who do we even call Israel at this point? Okay, so people who claim to be of Jewish descent, and how do we trace that lineage, and where did they come from, and why is it people who exist in the political border of Israel today, or the, the Old Testament border of Israel presently, and how do we make sense then of the conflict between the Palestinians and the Jordanians and the Lebanese and the Egyptians and Israel's role? And are we supposed to be looking at national polit global politics today in light of how things existed 3,000 years ago and what it's the same and what's different? So these are really important questions and they have a massive geopolitical implications. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit in two weeks. But for today's purposes, I want you to see that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of everything God prophesied and called Israel to by vocation. He fulfilled it. He was the only one could do it, and he did it as one singular human, but on behalf of and in substitute for everyone who by faith would be joined with him. And so our oneness and our abiding and our remaining, our connection with Christ now becomes the source of our fruitfulness. And now everyone who's in Christ is supposed to be fulfilling all the things that we read about Israel of the Old Testament, and that's supposed to be happening in today's age. And so there's an identity component that he's the source, we are not, it's not within our ability to drum up spiritual life, he's the vine, but we are the branches. And so in connection with him, we experience personal fruitfulness and vocational fruitfulness. So there's a missional component, this is going somewhere which has to do with how useful are you, which is why Alan's questions are so insightful and vulnerable and humble, and they actually are the questions all of us ought to be asking. So, verse six continues, if anyone does not abide in me, so now we're getting the negative. So abide in me is the command, now we're getting the contingent negative. So the subjunctive case, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away, like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered thrown into the fire and burned now again you're going to be getting in john's writing both in the gospel of john the epistles of john and the revelation you're going to be getting massive amounts of old testament quotation and illusion one of the reasons why i was so passionate about us as a church reading the bible in six months is i wanted us to be exposed to in relatively short order um, the entire Old Testament and then the entire New Testament so that our brains would have the ability to make some connections um, because we haven't been so disconnected in time from these texts. And so when you read John chapter 15 and verse 6 and you, you hear about this, the branches being taken away and withering and burned and thrown into the fire, there should be a connection in your mind to Ezekiel chapter 15, which we just read several weeks ago. This is Ezekiel 15, 1 to 4 or 1 to 5. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood, the vine branch that is among the trees of the forest? 
So this is a question and it's a quandary. So if you're going to go get a, a good piece of wood to handcraft a table or to make an item, you are not going to be thinking of a vine. It's thin, brittle, doesn't, it doesn't do anything. I mean, if you're going to make a basket or something, maybe you're going to use a vine, but in terms of like looking for wood, so God's saying, how, how does the wood of the vine surpass? How is it better wood than um, the trees of the forest? Verse three, is wood taken from it to make anything? And these are rhetorical no's. Do people take a peg from it to hang a vessel on it? So is it hard enough that you could use it to hang a picture on the wall? No, it's going to snap under the weight of anything. Verse four, behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. The only thing it's good for is getting a fire good and hot. When the fire has consumed both ends of it and the middle of it, it is charred. Is it useful for anything? So obviously there are some woods that can be burned like the inside of a bourbon barrel. And now they have a new roll because of how dense they are. You can char one side of it and use it for something different. You can cook a piece of fish on it. You're going to get some flavor out of it. And so here's this usefulness. And now God is speaking to Ezekiel and saying, is there any usefulness once a vine's been burned? And the answer is no. Verse five, behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred, can it ever be used for anything? This is, this is a picture of like the heartbreaking waste of a vine that is not bearing fruit through connection to its source. There is no purpose for it. This is a picture of God saying, um, he hasn't, when he says it elsewhere, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is not after judgment and destruction. And he's saying it is such, it's such a travesty to think about a vine that is so powerful and so fruitful and can be so effective when it's alive, having no value at all, except to be burned and then it's gone. And so there's a, there's a heartbreak, heartbreak here that God's expressing because of the lack of fulfillment and vocation and that all being tied to the nature of a vine. And so this is going to be turned on its head um, because Jesus is going to become this cut off branch. He is going to die, but because of the nature of who he is and his divinity, he is going to defeat death through death and rise again. This is again, that picture of the bronze serpent, which we talked about a few episodes ago, you know, when all the Israelites were being bitten by these snakes as a judgment of God, what was the solution that God gave to Moses? He said, build a bronze serpent. And you're like, wait, I got to look at the thing that caused the trouble. But by looking at the thing, by seeing the source of the problem and by obeying God and through faith, doing a thing that doesn't make any sense, we're both identifying the source of the problem. This is our allegiance to the snake, the unbelief, the disobedience, and through the belief in God and taking him at his word. Now we're looking to something and that thing is giving us healing. And now Jesus says, even as the bronze serpent was lifted up, so must the son of man be lifted up. And so we see in Christ the evil and brokenness of the human condition being lifted up and destroyed. And as we look to him, it's not us being better, doing better, that becomes the source of our spiritual life. No, it's our faith in the one uh, who bore it away. And so we see the sin of mankind, the brokenness of mankind, the disconnection of mankind, um, ultimately finding its end in the death of Christ and in his life. And now by faith, we find a new connection, a new life source. And so this is, this is the picture. Now, conversely, 
we get engaged with our calling. We start by abiding in Christ. He's the source of our righteousness in life. And now we're useful to God and we're being fruitful. We're bearing fruit. Our lives are changing. And the influence of our life is bringing God's blessing of salvation to the whole world. And this is what he's promised to complete. This is where the eschatological component comes in because God is doing something to bring together the fruition of all things. And there's no limitations. There's no limitations on this whatsoever. And so um, in verse seven, Jesus now contingent makes this upon our connection with him by faith. And again, we get the word abide. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. And so now we have this relationship with Jesus where he is teacher, he is teacher, he is revealer, and his words are finding a home in us. So this is taking us back to the parable of the soils and how do we receive the seed of the word and how do, how do his words abide in us? Now we have this connection where we have this unlimited access to the support of God himself. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This is why I have an unshakable confidence that anytime we are doing anything to further the purposes of God in the world, there is no need for us to do anything except trust him for the provision of those things. He's, he's said it. If you're, if you're going to do this thing, this fruitfulness that he wants to bring, go ahead and ask and he's going to do it for you because he's committed to his own glory. He's committed to his purposes. He wants this fruit to be born. And so we are going to, we're going to make ourselves his and we're going to make his words ours. And this is where this is going to come from. And so we're going to be full of love and we're going to be an expression of God's love, or we are going to be useless except for destruction and fruitlessness. And so we can be kind, or we can be kindling. Those are, those are our choices. And so this is, this is the message that Jesus is bringing us to. And so again, we get this, this uh, command to abide. And now this is bringing us to the, the point of um, our connection with Jesus abiding, and then our influence on other people, fruitfulness. And the source of that is coming through our relationship a life-giving relationship, a love relationship where we are experiencing a new sense of identity through connection to Jesus. And so it begs the question, who do you love? And so if you've ever tried to love other people out of your own inner strength, you will find it is very difficult, if not impossible. And the only way it's possible is if you have everly increasingly small amounts of people you're trying to love and you're able to find some type of arrangement with them that's mutually beneficial. But for the most part, if you're engaging in relationships far and wide, you will find that it's very, very hard to love people unless you find a connection through Christ that enables a spirit-empowered, supernatural source of love for people who do not love you back and cannot love you back. And so it's got to be your love for Christ and his love for you that ends up being the source by which you love people who can't love you back. You can't get from other people the love that you require, and you can't give to people the love that they require except by abiding in Christ. This is where the source of supernatural love comes from. And he recognizes this. And this is why at, at Christ Church, one of the ways we've built foundationally is to see the church as an empowered missional community. We've got to have God's definition of our identity in connection to a right identity of Christ. Uh, we've got to understand our purpose function as a part of the body of Christ, a oneness with him in which we fulfill a particular part of his fullness in the earth. And so we are the body of Christ. So we have hands and we have feet and we have eyes and we have ears and all of us compose one body with Christ as our head. There's a picture there of that same oneness. And then the Holy Spirit is what joins us together with one another. And so it's all built on relationships and community that has to be built upon supernatural and divine love. It can't be sourced in 
uh, reciprocation. It can't be sourced in synergy. It's not, it's not that we're going to have these relationships where I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Uh, that'll never work out. We're too broken for that. We've got to be existing in a uh, one way flow of love from God to us and through us to others and not trying to suck love or affirmation or affection or encouragement or significance from other people. This is what breaks down relationships. And that's what true community is all about. So empower, commissional, uh, uh, empowered missional community. So identity, purpose, relationship, and all this all this is given to us with this one command, and I just love this, and I love, Alan, that you tapped into this. Um, what is it that we're supposed to do? How do, I, how do I do this? Give me some practical advice, and here's the practical advice. It's the same advice you give to your Labrador. Stay. Stay. <laughs> like, literally, don't leave. Stay right here. Remain. Abide. Just don't, just don't go. Don't move. Don't move on. Don't go elsewhere. Don't look for it elsewhere. It is so simple and it's so passive, right? So it's given to us as an imperative, you must do it, but it's also not an action. It's completely passive. It's a passive imperative. So it's basically, here you are statically, don't go anywhere else, stay, abide. Because again, we recognize we are not the source of life, but we're connected to the vine who is. And we are not able to bear fruit alone but we are conduits of the life and love of Almighty God. And we cannot bring fruitfulness and transformation to the people around us, but we can be a conduit by which God brings fruitfulness. And so we are made one with Christ. Another one of these, um, this will start to make a lot more sense when you get into the New Testament's teaching on uh, Israel and the church uh, in Galatians and other places where Paul talks about, in Romans talks about um, the Jews being branches who were cut off, and then the Gentiles being branches that were grafted in, and both come back to Christ through faith. One is a natural branch, one is a foreign branch, but both, when grafted by faith, become one, and also f have one life source, which means we ought to have humility, recognizing that while we are different, we are both equally dependent. And so this is a picture that gets expressed, and again, ought to really shape our sense of eschatology, especially as we look to the difference between geoethnic Israel and the church. And if Jesus isn't at the center of those definitions, we're going to come to some wrong conclusions uh, about the nature of Old Testament prophecy and about expectation for um, the, the Jews of the future and so on. And so a lot of the confusion in eschatology is wrapped up in this Israel versus the church and what's the role of Jesus in that and the plans of God and dispensations of God and different levels of covenant and what's going to happen and when and all sorts of things. So how do we do this, this thing and get back to Alan's questions as we kind of seek to land this plane. So he says, how do you manage this challenge, this challenge to truly abide in Jesus and to be living lives that are expressing dependence upon him and fruitfulness personally through transformation and then influence. How is that supposed to be affecting the people who are around you? And then what do we do with the struggles that we have, right? So if you're like Alan, if you're honest enough to say, Hey, my behavior, my external behavior vacillates back and forth between me abiding in Christ and finding myself filled with supernatural love and joy and hope and peace and patience and kindness and forbearance, and then not, what am I supposed to do about that? So I can't speak for everyone, but I can tell you for me, I have found that it is not so static a relationship that if I do nothing, that I will stay. And so as a surfer, 
I'll tell you that sometimes you'll get into the ocean and you will paddle out and stay right in front of the very spot on the beach where you paddled out. There's no drift from the north to the south or the south to the north. But most of the time when there's good waves and there's some swell in the water, it's because some storm system is cranking out groundswell from either north of us or south of us, sometimes directly east of us. But for the most part, when there's good waves, the whole ocean is moving north to south or south to north and you get into it and whatever direction that swell is coming from, you begin to drift. And so you can get in the ocean and maybe you've gone to the beach and waded out rib cage high and swam for a few minutes. And then you came in and you looked up the beach and you had drifted seven, eight, nine blocks away. Or maybe you're, we've, we saw this, uh, we had a little beach party for a friend and a little girl who has not grown up at the beach, got in the water, drifted down, lost sight of our party, and then went walking in the opposite direction and got herself good and lost and terrified everyone who was there. We stopped everything to look for her. And that's the nature of drift. And the same is true spiritually. Uh, we don't wake up and stay static in our relationship with Jesus. This is why this command to abide is so important. Um, without an active pursuit of staying in the love of Jesus. And the good news is he doesn't go anywhere. He stays right there. He's always there. He's always there in his word. He's always there by his spirit. He's always there for us in prayer. He's always there for us for forgiveness. We can return to him. You can, you can have walked away from God a 10,000 miles and you're still only one step back because he doesn't move. The question is, do you recognize the elements in your life that cause you to drift? So for me, if I wake up every day and I have no spiritual discipline, if I don't pray, if I don't read any scripture, if I don't, um, if I don't have relationships with people in the Lord and I'm talking about what the Lord is doing, it's not too long before my own internal sense of insecurity, desire, stress, anxiety begins to take me to a very godless place in my thinking and then ultimately my behaving. And I start looking for life in all the wrong places. And it's not that God has moved, it's that I have. And so this static uh, command, this passive command to abide, really, really it's a daily command for us to pursue God in a way that anchors us in his reality. I mean, this is what Jesus taught his disciples to pray, right? In Matthew 6, 9, he said, um, pray then like this, our Father who art in heaven. So we have this initial immediate relationship with God as Father, our Father in heaven. He's there, we're here. Um, hallowed be your name. So there's this position of the fear of the Lord. You, you, you are different than me and you deserve reverence and awe and worship. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So you are God and I am not, and I am yours and I am here to fulfill your purposes. You're already orienting yourself um, in submission to God and uh, affection as God, with God as your father, provider, and you're aligning your purposes as you start your day with the purposes of God in the earth. And so God, you rule and reign in the heavens and you've given us dominion over the earth. And so in my life, bring your dominion in the earth. And then he says, give, give us this day our daily bread. So here's this picture of daily dependence. So often, you know, God doesn't give us everything we need. If God gave us everything we need, would we really stay that dependent upon him or would we be so much quicker to run off and do our own thing? So sometimes even by our own daily need, he's just using that to bring us back to him every single day. Um, we, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't take your 13-year-old out and give him... Uh, here's your checking account, debit card, $200,000. You can make your own decisions and do whatever you want. Just be home by six. Do you think they would come home? <laughs> you know, I mean, change the age of your child, 16, 18. Um, so dependence through insufficient support isn't always a bad thing, but God's always using our situations to draw us to him. Give us this day, our daily bread and so on and so forth. You can walk through the, our father prayer for yourself, but you recognize this is a daily dependent, a daily 
um, reconnection, redirection, where we're setting with intentionality um, our self in relationship to God. This is the abiding that, that he's talking about. So in addition to reading the scriptures every day, praying every day, I do this in the morning. I find, you know, I've, I've met lots of people in, in my life who say, oh, in the morning my brain's mush and it takes me three hours to wake up and nine cups of coffee and then I have to get my work done and I don't really come alive until four o'clock in the afternoon. And, and so my time with the Lord is at nine o'clock at night or 11 o'clock at night. That's where me and the Lord really hum and I just wake up when I get up just feeling great based on that. Well, that's not me at all. <laughs> So I'm the exact opposite. My, my eyeballs open whatever time it is, four, five, six o'clock in the morning. My brain's immediately active. Um, so that's the time for me where I have to choose to abide. And when I do that, it sets the course of my day. And by four o'clock in the afternoon, when my brain is mush, uh, I'm, not, I'm not the stressed out jerk that I would be otherwise because I've been walking with the Lord all day and I'm able to receive his gifts of rest and food and family and and uh, my, my most productive hours of the day have passed, but, um, I'm anchored in a really good spot. And so, um, I'm not good for much after about nine o'clock at night, but if I start my day abiding with him, my days look a lot more fruitful than if I don't, or if I say I'll get to it later. And so that for me is my practice. I also have found that it's helpful for me, um, as a thick headed male to, um, write notes to myself of things that I learned that I'm quick to forget. And so I've been married for 21 years and I don't know how many conversations I've had where I say to my wife in this aha moment, Oh wow, you're saying this. And she goes, yes. And I've said it to you a hundred times <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well it didn't click until now, but if I don't actually do something with that, it'll disappear like a vapor, like a mirage and I won't be there again. And that's not just in our marriage relationships that can be with our own um, aha moments with self-perception and internal brokenness and just immaturity and immature responses. And so the ways we want to grow, sometimes we need to be a little proactive about it. And so I journal, I didn't ever journal until about four years ago. I don't, I, I have, I had 10 journals that I bought with one page filled out. I was that guy. Um, and so it wasn't until my iPhone notes that I started actually journaling in a way that's been helpful for me. So those are some of the ways that I abide. Um, I also listen to worship music. We have music playing in our home all the time. Uh, I find for me that the music I listen to shapes my emotion and also desire in a real subconscious kind of a way. And so there's music that I enjoy listening to, but I also notice that if I listen to too much of the same kind of music that's not a Godward music, um, it just gets me in a head or in a subconscious funk that takes me in directions I don't want to go. So I don't want to be led around. I don't want to be a anchorless boat with a sail in the wind and letting the wind just take me wherever it wills. And so part of this abiding too is, you know, taking down the sail of whatever influences aren't good for you. It's the reason I got off social media four years ago. It's just not good for me. It's not good for me to scroll through people's lives and, and in what felt like a voyeuristic kind of a way, feeling connected to people that I didn't have relationships with and feeling feelings of judgment and interpretation and envy and all, all kinds of stuff. So some, some of you are fine and free from that. I'm not. So I got off. And so if there's things that cause you to drift faster or further uh, and fight the abiding that Jesus gives us as an imperative, then be willing to get rid of them. Jesus said, if your if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. You'd be better off to, to make it into God's eternal presence um, with Adonai or hand than uh, to have your whole body thrown into hell. So these things deeply matter. Which way are you going? Ultimately, I'll end here. Ultimately, these things do not depend on us because we are not the source. And it's not the 
the um, fulfillment or the commitment of our abiding that is our source. And it's not our obedience that um, creates our eternal security. It's Christ. The question is, are you staying close to Christ? Or are you, without thinking, even passively, becoming your own source? And this is what disconnection from the vine looks like. I don't have a source in me. You don't have a source in you. I can't find a source in other people. I can't find a source in work. I can't find a source in relationships. I can't find a source in friendships. Uh, and anytime I tried to make any of those things my source, I just slowly wither and die and stop being the fruitful person that God's called me to be. So if there wants to be fruitfulness in your life, then it's got to come from the source. And this is where God gets the glory because he's the one who's bringing it about. And so we just continue to stay near uh, to him. I'll end right here. This is um, Isaiah 12, which I also mentioned. It says in verse one, you will say in that day, and I love when Isaiah says in that day, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. And this is where the wrath of God was, was turned away from us and Christ bore it away so that there is no anger for us. And now that he's not angry with us, it says that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. And this is Isaiah's title for Jesus Messiah. So all these things, again, they tie together. Our, our uh, joy, our salvation, our transformation, our lack of fear, our comfort, our deliverance from wrath. This is the stuff of personal salvation. It's connected to our abiding in Christ. He's the Holy One of Israel. He's accomplished it. And as we live this life of abiding and we are experiencing the joy and the salvation and the meaning, the purpose, the natural outflow of that is gratitude to God. I mean, we're talking about him because he's the center figure of our life. We're calling upon his name and we're telling people about what he's capable of and what he does. And this is the boldness for witness that brings fruitfulness through relationships. And so we're proclaiming his name and uh, we're singing praises. Um, I've had a lot of people over the years express to me that they came to church to hear sermons and they thought we should sing less music. And I've always said, nope, not gonna do that because it's not about what we hear, what we learn or putting focus on study. Um, in equal component parts, like we ought to be people who express praise to God through song. And so to be a Christian is to be a singer, to be uh, one with Christ is to be a worshiper. And so this ought to shape our lives every day, not just on Sundays. We ought to be worshipers. And as we sing praises to the Lord, the things that we're passionate about, the things that we talk about, things we draw attention to, he ought to be at the center of because he has done gloriously. He's done so much. And, and that should be testimony after testimony on our lips all the time. People ought to be persuaded by the stories of God's deliverance in our lives and God's power and his salvation and his transformation. And we should be letting this be made known in all the earth. And so we ought to be loud. We ought to be joyful. We ought to be singing. Um, and we ought to be celebrating all the time because of the fact that we dwell with, abide with the Holy One of Israel. And so this is what Jesus offers to us in John chapter 15. This is what John, the gospel writer, 
puts forward to us as uh, the nature of who Christ is and his fulfillment of all of God's purposes and promises to Israel and for Israel and through Israel and now for all who are in him by faith and called to abide and, and bear fruit. This is how God does it. And uh, he does it in a really transformative, personal, intimate, and also external and powerful way. It's characterized by by witness and celebration and song. And so this shapes who we are privately and it shapes who we are publicly. And if we're doing it right, Alan, you're spot on. It ought to be pretty uh, influential and persuasive uh, to the world we live in. So look for ways that you can um, apply or or be intentional about abiding. And, you know, they're all going to be basically the same in the sense that they re- require us to know God's word and read it and pray and spend time with him and and worship and express our gratitude to him and talk about him through witness. So there's those, those age old spiritual disciplines, but then there's also unique ways that we can kind of craft a life of abiding that looks different. So maybe you harness your drive, or maybe there's a particular time of the day that's challenging for you or a relationship that you need to pray before you start talking to a person or, or whatever, all those things can be shaped through a little humility and self-knowledge and dependence upon the Lord and wisdom from other people. And so work at it. I've tried lots of different things. And now as a 41 year old, I've finally found some things that, that work for me. And I'm sure I'll learn more as I continue to walk with Jesus, but that's where I am now. And I think that hopefully begins to answer your question. So good being with you guys uh, next week. Again, no podcast. Don't be sad. We'll see you in two weeks for our round table to talk eschatology. And again, we welcome all your questions. Shoot them over to us. Jesse at joinwithjesus.org. We look forward to being with you next time. We hope you enjoyed this week's deep dive into the scriptures. Our goal is to help you know Jesus better so that you can implement your identity in Christ, engage in your unique purpose and calling, and create community around your relationship with Jesus. For more content like this and opportunities to connect with us in person, find us online at joinwithjesus.org.